Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Oh, Jack. Jack O'Hara. Boy, you ask me some interesting questions, my man. It's a great question, Jack. Jack, hey, it's Josh Radder. Hey there, Jack O'Hara. It's Johnny Damon. Jack, you had questions for me. Jack O'Hara? Absolutely. This message is for Jack O'Hara. Jack, how are you? Hey, Jack. Jack, hey, what's going on, man? How you doing? What's going on, Jack? Uh, listen, man, you know, you, you, you asked me a couple questions. Broadcasting around the world, you're listening to The O Show. In the show and uh, doing your thing, I mean, you've got some pr- pretty big name guests. I've seen your, your stuff, so congratulations on your success. Jack O'Hara. Much nicer guy than Conan O'Brien, with much better interviewing skills. Don't forget to share this episode on your social media. Now, let's get to it. I'm so boned. I forgot to get my girl tickets for the show tomorrow, and now it's sold out. It's her freaking birthday. Oh, dude. She's definitely going to break up with you. She's definitely going to break up with me. Should have used TickPick. Wait, what'd you say? TickPick. Look. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. What? There are no hidden fees. What'd you guys think I said? Oh, TickPick. I thought you said TickPick. No hidden fees. Download today. My goal was to go as far away as possible and just find a different culture. Uh, did you go away to college, or were you relatively close going to Temple University? I went away, away. But, um, yeah, Temple University, and it was a great film school. I was going to be a doctor, and I quit pre-med because I, I couldn't do chemistry or math. I'm too dumb at right. numbers. But I was a people person, and I loved film. I'd been making 8 millimeter. Now you're using your phone. But I would make, you know, student movies. And the movie I made at Temple University, I won a Student Academy Award. And the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences flew me to L.A., and I met Steven Spielberg and wow. Koch, who was the head of the Academy at the time, all these amazing people in my life that I still know some today. And um, I, Matt Stone had won one. Spike Lee had won one. Uh, John Lasseter, Pixar, wow. had won one. So I met all these people, and they were there. And I was 21 years old. It was pretty amazing. I was an 11-minute serious documentary about my nephew who had his face reconstructed. Ooh. Not screwing around. That's yeah. the truth. And he was uh, seven years old when he had it done. And so that's uh, tell me that's a long ass answer. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean that's very interesting. I mean I didn't know you started out uh, that early. At least you know getting one of your films in school selected uh, in order to win that trip. And then of course you've you've done a ton on both the stand up side and the film side. And I know we don't have a ton of time, so I kind of wanted to pick your brain about one specific thing. And obviously you've done Full House, you've done uh, Amer- America's Home Videos, you've done a ton of films, a ton. Of of uh, stand-up stuff as well, a ton of experiences on both ends of the spectrum. Why were you chosen, because I'm such a big fan of the show, why were you chosen as the elder voice, as the narrator, the elder voice of uh, Ted Mosby, which is obviously played by Josh Radner, in How I Met Your Mother? Because it's very interesting to me that they would pick someone else besides Josh to narrate it, even though it's him and his life talking. So I kind of wanted to pick your brain about how they can 
confronted you to uh, portray that and what your overall stance was on actually being the, again, elder voice of Josh Radner in a sense? Well, uh, I was... Uh I was friends with the exec, one of the exec producers, Pam Fryman, and I got a phone call from her, and I was doing an off-Broadway play in New York, and she said, would you like to voice this show? And I read the script, How I Met Your Mother, the pilot, and I said, well, why don't you have him doing it? And she said, we wanted to have an older feel. I said, well, you wanted to sound like cigars and alcohol? Because, right. man. And um, she said, kind of, but we wanted to sound like a familiar voice, a fatherly voice. And so that's how it happened. <laughs> and um, Josh, Josh and I are good friends, and we've talked about it. Actually, on the box set um, of the DVDs of How I Met Your Mother, the very last episode that on CBS, Josh Radner narrated on the box set is an alternate version where I do narrate the last episode. Oh, wow. So I got to say, and kids, that's the story of how I met your mother. Yeah. Uh, I say it so solemnly because it was a sad ending. It didn't upset me. I was, I'll talk about it more if I want, but it was uh, actually emotional and wonderful. And it was a wonderful show, and I was proud to be a silent part of it with an amazing cast and brilliant uh, brilliant I mean, you get to, again, work and collaborate with all of these different people, whether it is Full House doing that for as long as you did with those guys, you know, building those relationships and those friendships, and then obviously How I Met Your Mother as well. I mean, you probably miss all of that at this point. Again, like doing this live stream tonight, interacting with some of your fans, and at the same time actually getting to do something with a platform, because you haven't done much over the past year, have you? I know you did you did The Masked Singer, right? You, you dressed up as the squiggly monster, as the Masked Singer. And it was weird, man, because I was doing, you know, it was COVID. So it was the first thing I did. I They had asked me to be on The Masked Singer before, and I'm friends with Ken Jong, and I've known Robin Thicke a long time. I was friends with his dad, may mm -hmm. rest in peace, Alan yeah. Thicke. And they said, they asked me for years, Do you, since it started, do you want to be on it? Um, and I said, no, I'm, I'm good. And um, then after about six months of quarantine, uh, I got a, a call from the producer, Craig Plestis, and he said, do you want to be on? I said, yes. It was <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I wouldn't, I clipped him. I wouldn't let him finish the sentence or the question. And I had a really good time, but they wouldn't let me see anybody. I was like, who's Broccoli? Yeah. Broccoli started to piss me off. And then I didn't realize it was a competition. So it, the Masked Singer, you wear this, I had a diving bell, a diving helmet, not diving bell, that would have been heavier, diving helmet kind of thing on my head and it hurt like hell so i'm trying to walk i can't see anything and i sang i sang for real right it doesn't look good don't use that image i had the mic up to the the mesh but um and then when they took the head off when i got kicked off the show when they yelled take it off take it off and i wanted to pull my pants down but <laughs> and they, that could have happened by the way because the pants come off easy but the upper half yeah. is incredibly heavy um Anyway, um, so he, here's the deal. I, I didn't know that I was going to see the other characters. So here I am with with jellyfish and all these weird lips and all these no lips had already gotten kicked off. And I'm, I'm looking, and it, it looked like the Star Wars bar. Right. It looked like a lineup that I <laughs> right. was in with freaks. And then I never got to see anybody, and I was wondering who they were. Broccoli was Paul Anka. So I don't know. I could have kicked his butt. I think I should have got a third song. It was uh, Folsom Prison would have been my third song by Johnny Cash. Oh, yeah. They would have kicked me off. Oh, yeah. But anyway, I enjoyed doing it. 
Um, nobody asked. They definitely had to take you out of your comfort zone, considering the previous roles that you played. Because again, you are one of those unique guys in a unique position where you, like, yeah, you're a dirty comic who's also portrayed as this squeaky clean dad in in the eyes of most viewers who see you on television in film. When did Full House start? In, in the '90s, the '80s? I think it was late '80s, right? And then, like you said, like you have that clean cut persona. And at the same time, you're a, a comic who's willing to go off the rails. I was on another show on CBS uh, called The Morning Program, and I was on it for five months. It's on. It was on against Good Morning America and The Today Show, mm-hmm. and I got fired because oh, wow. they said I was too hot for morning TV. And the host of one of the hosts of the show, Marriott Hartley, very nice person, actress person, nice person, said, "Bob, are you a Type A personality?" And I said, yes, but I'm trying to work on my anus. And I meant A-ness, but it's, yep. I said anus. And she said, go to your room. And they sent me to my room, which is nothing. It wasn't a real room, but it was a set. And I went up the stairs, and I waited there for 15 minutes until the commercial break. And then I knew that I was not going to be there anymore. So uh, then my manager called Jeff Franklin, the creator of Full House, who said he wanted me to begin with. And they flew me to L.A. while I was there doing this other show, The Morning Program, and I did a screen test with Dave, who was my friend for 10 years before, and John Stamos, who is my husband, and uh, that's it. I ended up uh, doing the show for a very long time, and it didn't do well. Yeah, I heard that. It took a while, like nearly four or five years before it to actually get going. Of course, like you and Stamos being the stars of that show as the adult figures in that show, because again, you came into it as a quote-unquote dirty comic. Like, you were not the squeaky clean guy that everybody kind of sees you now, at least again from the, the film side of things. When did you, you know, how old were you when you started comedy, or like, how old were you when you realized that that's what you wanted to pursue because again to be able to go from where you are from a stand-up standpoint and a film standpoint it's again unheard of like you are definitely a rare breed in the sense of going from uh, someone who tells inappropriate jokes to being again this clean-cut guy on tv i started at 17 years old and i won a radio contest in philly at wmmr radio and I won $500, and I sang a song about bondage. Mm-hmm. That's what I did, a 17-year-old singing a song about bondage. Something's wrong with that kid. And I used to also take my guitar. I did all guitar music on parodies and comedy songs because I loved Martin Mull and other comedy musicians. And I've been playing guitar since I was 11. I used to take the train to New York and wait in line 14 hours, sign the sheet on, on uh, open mic nights at the Improv in New York, Catch a Rising Star in New York. And um, it was pretty amazing. I'll, I'll never forget it. And I'm glad I, I came up the hard way, you know, living at home with my parents, making student films, and then taking a train to go do comedy and wait in line forever. That's kind of, uh, I, wisdom comes through suffering. Oh, yeah. I think a philosopher said that who died a very violent death. No, no, I, I say that all the time. I mean, I, I my listeners who listen hear that frequently as well. I, I totally believe that uh, the best moments in life come from those learning experiences and those really hardship times. And I'm sure you've had a, a ton of those experiences as well coming up, whether it was in film or stand-up, where, again, like, you have to tell jokes, and if they don't work, those are some pretty awkward, weird, and hard times. You were also on Broadway, right? I'm sure that had to be a very big learning curve for you, having to do all of that on stage with an audience. Well, I'll tell you, it was... 
The Drowsy Chaperone. Now, this is a play that Bob Martin wrote and starred in, and he's brilliant. He just wrote a movie. I'm trying to think of what movie it is. Bob Martin, he's so brilliant. He had mm-hmm. written a show in Canada called Slings and Arrows, a TV show. Right. And The Drowsy Chaperone, if you ever get a chance to see it, um, who became a dear friend of mine is the uh, producer, Kevin McCollum, and another big producer of the show is Bob Boyette, who I'd been friends with for a long time because he was also one of the exec producers of Full House. Oh, and wow. along with Tom Miller, they produced shows like Mork and Mindy and Laverne and Shirley and Happy Days and, and Bosom Buddies is how I met him because that was Tom Hanks and Peter Scolari and I was the warm-up comic on there. So then cut two, as some people say, which is really annoying. Um, here I am on Broadway, the second biggest theater, the marquee, and I'd already done an off-Broadway play, which is the one I was doing called Privilege by Paul Weitz, who wrote about a boy and did and, and directed and wrote in good company remember that movie with topher grace and scarlett johansson dennis quaid as well in that movie uh yeah i mean that's so interesting to hear you kind of trying to go out of your comfort zone to pursue all of these different things again whether it's film stand-up broadway uh being on the masked singer during covid times i mean i'm sure you talked a lot about it in dirty daddy your book I, i know a lot of people will see that and think like yeah he's uh the american dad he's the the stand-up comic, but at the same time, you tell a lot of personal stories in that book as well. What, what are some of the specific things that you tell in Dirty Daddy? The byline underneath it was, uh, I believe it was Chronicles of a Family Man Turned Filthy Comedian. I think I would change the title completely at this point, but I'm really proud of it. It's it's not a, a curse book. It does have a stream of consciousness. Mm-hmm. When I first did the book tour, I was at the 92nd Street Y, in New York City, and John Oliver uh, interviewed the, interviewed me for the talk back. You do a thing back and forth when you're going on a book tour. And it was right before uh, this week tonight, last week tonight, and he has such a brilliant free associative mind. I had like three pages on worrying about getting old, and I don't know, I'd have leakage, yeah. and it would be coming out of my, you know, my mm-hmm. penis, and then I would slip on it and fall down the stairs and it was three pages of that. And then there'd be a chapter about how I lost two sisters. And so I talk about a lot of loss in my life and then how to find humor. And that's kind of, I think, what I got from my dad was a gift of not walking around going, why me? Why? Why, why did this happen to me? And instead have an attitude of how can I get through this and help others through it? Because loss is so difficult and to find humor not just gallows humor you know not just a sick joke Mm -hmm. but to somehow it's hard to explain but it's when something breaks the ice and you can get a smile out of someone who's going through the worst time in their life and it could be with a fart joke it can be with something that's not totally crude but it's in the book dirty daddy which was a New York Times bestseller. I don't know who got paid off. <laughs> no, but that that that's so true, man. I mean, you, you've obviously displayed that through, uh, whether it's stand-up and, again, Full House, which is, I think, a lot of people know you for Danny Tanner, obviously. Uh, but, you know, there's so many things, like you said, just little things that in order to make people laugh to, again, kind of change their mindset, go about their day in a totally different um, perspective. You did another uh, comedy special, right, on HBO as well? Uh, while we're at it, when we're talking about comedy, you did a, an HBO special? That ain't right. And that was a special 
that I got a lot of shit for because it it's it was very highly rated whatever they say and it got uh, either rave reviews or terrible reviews but that doesn't matter you do what you think is funny and uh, that was around the time that a lot of things happened i'd been on entourage and i'd been on uh i was in the aristocrats a lot of stuff had happened and i just came out of the gate and it was an r-rated special people think i'm x-rated i've never been x-rated ever i don't talk about things kind of logical um i i do when i go to the gynecologist because i'm trying to make a choice in my life right now god can i cancel myself anyway so uh hbo i did a special with them that ain't right and i shot it um at the skirball center uh skirball theater in new york city um, at NYU, so the audience was 21 years old, so I, there were a lot of F-bombs in it. I mean, if you counted the times I said that word, you would be oh, yeah. in a drinking game, you would, would not get up. But I, I love doing that special, and um, it still runs, and people still like it. I watch it, I go, whoa, I don't think I'd say that now. But then again, <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to do when I do my new special, when I get back to doing a new tour, mm-hmm. as a lot of us comedians are dying. I mean, do. I'm sure you guys are dying to get back, you know, you know, in that room together and, and crank out some material. I mean, being friends with people, you know, that you've worked with for so many years, whether it's comics, actors alike, you know, like you're in Full House, you did Fuller House recently as well. Uh, you know, you're in the Entourage episodes as well. You know, what, what's it like being friends with people that you've worked with for so many years and, you know, maintaining some of those friendships while others have kind of been tossed aside but again like how is that um for you and how have you been able to maintain those friendships over the years whatever shows i've been on and and know people from i I stay friends with them um except for a couple pilots that i wanted to stay friends with people but you know it's it's weird because you don't it's not like high school i don't have many friends from high school but i moved a lot no i'm absolutely the same way i i stayed in touch with nobody from high school i mean an occasional text message every now and then but i i've lost touch with all of those people at the end of the day you're going to find the people that you mesh well with and obviously you found those uh people you know outside of the industry but inside the industry for, for everybody to see from a public standpoint obviously you and stamos uh together on television was gold for so many years you guys still get together and play music together i know you actually won a grant or you were nominated excuse me for a grammy album uh back in the day right it was that's what i'm talking about because after you do a special call that ain't right what's your next one called that's what i'm talking about with an apostrophe after the end and uh i'm really proud of that uh special i shot it at the moore theater in Seattle, and I was um, up against uh, some really, really talented people. And Kathy Griffin actually won for Best Comedy Album. And uh, I thought Tig Notaro was gonna win because she's so special. And um, I'm trying to think who else was in that category. Might've been Patton Oswalt, who's up again, I believe this year. He's up pretty much every year because he's so prolific and been brilliant. I, I mean, I've always found it so fascinating, you know, guys in in your world who are able to come up with this stuff, whether it's, you know, long-term, short-term, you think of it right off the top of your head, or it takes you months, even years to come up with a certain material that just is so ironic and funny, and, and it makes people think, like, in the moment, just like, yeah, he's so right. And you see that today with comics, you know, whether it's on Netflix or you go out to a show, obviously we haven't been able to, but, you know, in the past, you know, comics 
topics, whether, again, you're on Netflix online talking about real-life experiences that are ironic and real at the same time, I feel like it's going to be a lot harder moving forward, you know, because, again, you were talking about it earlier on the stream as well as here uh, about, you know, cancel culture and people, you know, taking offense to a lot of things. But, you know, do you feel like uh, the comics today, whether, you know, it is the Bill Burrs or the Chappelles or the Chris Rocks of the world, uh, do you think that they're going to be as well as you, you know, like, because, again, you, you're you're a comic who's not afraid to give his opinions on things in, in the way that you give them. Do you think it's going to be easier or harder? And have you enjoyed uh, the specials that have come out over the past year, given everything that's been going on? Don't you love the comics online? I feel so much better when I'm watching comedy being done during this time. You just deflect and you go to it and all of a sudden on your phone you got Sebastian or Jim Gaffigan or oh, yeah. Dave Chappelle or Chris Rock or people that you love, whoever you love, whoever makes you laugh. And that's what we need to do right now because it's hard because a lot of stuff is parody of the remains of the day. And the remain the remains are just horrible. It's just people calling each other crap. And it's like a, a roast, but it's not funny. It's like, if you're going to make fun of somebody, you don't, I don't know. I don't want to talk about it. I'm not going to mention, <laughs> you know, going to Cancun. I'm not going to mention, you know, Taking off your masks. I mean, some people should right. wear them all the time. We know what some of you look like. Not <laughs> I should wear a mask. I don't look that good. I look okay. I mean, I'm going to be 65. And uh, my ex-wife actually emailed me and said, you need to file for Medicare. I'm like, what? what? I'm living to like 110 because I got to make all you kids. I got to educate you. Yeah. I actually feel a responsibility. Sometimes I'll get introduced somewhere and they'll say, America's favorite dad i was one time at the comedy store in la and i wanted to go on and it was late and sometimes guests drop in and this is about a year and a half ago maybe a little more but before quarantine before COVID. Mm -hmm, right wow man right and so uh, when i say man i mean everybody yep right man no right right everybody so what happened was uh i called and it's like 12 30 and i said i want to come in and they said oh chris rock's going up and i went wow okay so he's going to bring me up and they said yeah and i went cool so i go there and he's you know crushing and doing some great stuff because he's brilliant right and then he introduces me and he goes ladies and gentlemen he raised us all he's america's dad and it was like such an honor <laughs> because i didn't know i raised chris i'm really proud i would want to get a cut you know um and he brought me up on stage and i got to hug him because he's like my son after he says i'm like yeah. dad and i got a standing ovation and they weren't leaving because dave chappelle Stayed and he sat at the piano because he'd gone on and done 45 oh, yeah. at 1 30 in the morning And that's when when businesses come back when everything is coming back in the months ahead because we're all gonna get vaccined I'm gonna get I got the shot I got the first shot in my penis and the second one's <laughs> gonna be in my butt So that way I'm balanced and I don't fall right. Yeah, because otherwise I'll be like a weeble I don't know if you know what they are they wobble, but they don't fall down. It's an old thing You wouldn't know but it's like those things you punch and they come back. Okay, you know your kids no, I don't hit my kids. I hit my kid once, one of my kids. And um, she was like three, and I made a mistake, but she pooped in the pool, and I got mad. Yeah, I guess that. Her. And I uh, But she wasn't done pooping, mm. so the joke was on me and on my hand. It Ooh. was disgusting. Yeah. She reminds me to this day, and uh, I love all my kids equally. I, I, my favorite is whoever I'm with at that moment. So there I guess the, the punchline to what I'm getting to is uh, non-existent, but... I do love the responsibility 
of having been a dad on those shows. Some people go, oh, what, what, why are you dirty? Why is your... Because right, right. Danny Tanner was a character, uh -huh. right? But people don't know that. And they go, why don't you act like Danny Tanner? And it's like, well, Anthony Hopkins was, you know, Hannibal Lecter in Silence of the Lambs. Right. That's not what he's like in real life. You know, he, he doesn't eat people. Um, I actually said that once to Conan O'Brien, and he said, no, he does. That Anthony <laughs> Hopkins eats people. But um, anyway, so I love being a father and I love portraying a good dad but I also love doing stand up and I'm oh, yeah. going to get out and do it again and I try not to write dirty stuff um, but sometimes it just I can't help it the oh, stuff yeah. I've been coming up in fact I'll read a joke that I just wrote down the other day nice to give you an idea I got the uh, the iPhone yeah. and I got a, I write down my list of jokes on it right so that's how I roll through life the last thing I wrote down is going to be inappropriate because I just can't help but think of things. There's a lot of stuff. There's a, this is people want to know how you how you do uh, comedy. It's just like well, you can't see it. Right. That's great. Let me make it brighter. Okay. Um, <laughs> I can't say any of this. Oh, I I, I can't say any of this. <laughs> I okay. I'll say something. Thank God. Um, that a friend of mine. This is not appropriate. A friend of mine said when you have sex, you you got to use lube. And I said, you know, I haven't had sex in a while, so when I do, I start crying. And I found out that tears make a really good loop. So you can weep on... <laughs> okay. Yeah. I'm not going to tell you anything else I wrote down, but you'll see it in the next stand-up special or on the road, and then I'll cut that one. I'm really uh, serious. <laughs> well, I mean, that's awesome. And, and, and thanks so much for taking time uh, out of the night after the stream. Uh, again, uh, Bob Saget with us here. Uh, I hope you enjoy the rest of, you know, your, your quarantine. I know you're itching to get back in the game. Your new movie coming out as well that you guys are going to be filming out in L.A. soon. So I wish you the best of luck, man. Oh, yeah, definitely. I, I can't wait till everybody can come back and interact. It'll be a blast, man. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks so much, man. Thanks so much, Bob. I am so boned. I forgot to get my girl tickets for the show tomorrow, and now it's sold out. It's her freaking birthday. Oh, dude. She's definitely going to break up with you. She's definitely going to break up with me. Should have used TickPick. Wait, what'd you say? TickPick. Look. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. What? There are no hidden fees. What'd you guys think I said? Oh, tick pick. I thought you said tick pick. No hidden fees. Download today. So how, how busy are you right now, given everything else going on? Um, it varies week to week. I had two games last week. Um, I have one this week, and then I kind of start kicking back into high gear next week. We got all the Madden recordings picking back up. So, right. Um, yeah, so it's it's good, though. It's good to be back busy after, a, obviously, a very slow pandemic. 
Right. And 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 just because you mentioned it right there, and you've definitely answered that question a, a billion times at this point, just to get into it uh, right off the bat. For you, uh, just mentioning that uh, you're going to go back to work, back to the studio for Madden and everything like that. Uh, I mean, play-by-play aside for you, uh, getting a start in, in minor league baseball, I saw, as well as with the BTN Network and Fox Sports calling, uh, calling college football games. But for you, uh, what was the whole experience like getting uh, the call to become the next voice of Madden football and like how did that all go for you personally and why do you think that they chose you for the the video game franchise yeah it's one of those you know you'll probably only get a few phone calls in life or emails that you that you never really forget and that certainly ranks up there at at the top I was at the time doing the play-by-play at Georgia Tech and I got a, a note via LinkedIn, actually, from the director of talent at EA Sports. And basically the note said, we have an opportunity at EA Sports we would like to speak to you about. And I didn't know why they would be reaching out to me. I didn't know what it was about. I didn't certainly think that going through LinkedIn seemed like the most viable option right. for a big company like EA Sports. So it was a little surprising, but I took the message to be serious and I replied and set up a phone call and lo and behold they went on to tell me that they were looking to move on from Jim Nance and Phil Sims and one of the producers that worked on the game had heard my work and identified me as sort of a dark horse candidate they liked my voice they liked my call and so they at least wanted to bring me down to Orlando where the studio is to audition so I went down to audition this is back in gosh 2015 and I wasn't thinking a whole lot of it I mean certainly I was excited to be considered I was flattered but I knew that they were replacing Jim Nance and that they would probably be reaching out to a lot of national big names and that I was just one of many auditioning so but when I did the audition I thought it went extremely well it felt good it felt natural and the feedback was positive so I just I hoped and waited and then a couple of months later they called and and sure enough asked if I wanted to be the one to replace Jim Nance and again that that's a phone call that you you only get once in a lifetime I'll always remember where I was and I, I couldn't say yes fast enough so it's been an extremely rewarding last five years with that franchise how uh, I guess awesome or weird is it hearing your voice in a video game? I don't know if you play it at all, but w- what's that experience like? I actually don't play it. The right. only time I've played it is when my nephew in uh, Dallas, Texas beats me and I go down <laughs> and visit, visit the families for the holidays. And I'll, you know, if he asks me to play, I'll play him. I've played him a few times. He's beaten me every time. So <laughs> I do not own a system, though, so I don't hear it very often. I did when I... Before the pandemic, when we would go down to Orlando every week, they would sometimes have these uh, testing sessions where they would play the game and we would listen to it so that we could make suggestions for the audio. And to be honest, um, I don't like, I don't love how it sounds just because when you call a real game, it's much more natural and fluid. A video game is very robotic. It's taking eight to 10 second sound bites that were recorded on different days and different weeks, in many cases, different years, and meshing them together back to back to back to try to make it sound like it's one coherent thought, when in reality, 
it's just a bunch of stitched together lines. So I more or less get frustrated because I want perfection. I expect perfection out of myself. And when, when the lines don't flow well together, at no fault of, of the people at EA, it's just how the video game mechanics work, um, I can get a little frustrated at times. All right. I mean, I can only imagine that it's just kind of tough getting into that, you know, game seven mode of having a passion and empathy towards a call when you're just in a studio like with headphones on yeah they also you know you want to be careful you don't want to go too over the top and get too excited on certain lines because then that won't match with the other lines and if you go from really high back to normal monotone and then it then it just sounds even more weird so it's almost better to keep an even keel voice throughout everything and, and almost be like background noise. I think that's what the EA developers really want. They yeah. want you kind of just to blend in with the game. I think if you don't stand out, then that's that's the better scenario. So, you know, sometimes I'm sure if you're if you're calling a touchdown winning catch in the video game, it's not going to sound like it would just naturally in an actual Super Bowl broadcast. That's right. just the nature of the beast because that touchdown catch has to be played also when it's 52 to three in the fourth quarter of a Jets-Lions game. So, right. um, so, yeah, so it's a little bit tricky, but it's uh, it's been a fun and unique challenge. So do they give you, like, background noise and stuff to kind of bounce off on to have that sort of passion for some of those calls? Like, do they uh, give you any sort of uh, effects in that nature? When I do a solo session, uh, sometimes the engineer Kyle Burt will put in the game's underlying crowd noise which is just a little bit of a dull crowd noise so it's not yeah. really a roar so you don't really get the but at least gives you some type of a sense like you're in a stadium when charles and i do two-man sessions kyle plays music for us because uh, charles likes to hear hear music and so we'll, we'll mainly listen to music when we go back and forth for the two-man sessions but since the pandemic started and we've been recording remotely from home obviously that is all changed and so we don't have access to the things we, we used to in the studio. So we're just kind of going off Zoom calls and trying to make the best of it and hopefully uh, continue to record the game at the same level we were prior to the pandemic. Yeah, definitely, man. And, and just to go back to the beginning with you kind of switching gears to uh, getting into broadcast, because I don't want to take too much of your time here, but uh, what was it for you uh, growing up? When did you decide that you wanted to pursue uh, play-by-play commentary, and when was it? When Because your first uh, big break, I know, was in minor league baseball with the Orm Owls, right? Yeah, yeah, that was my first job out of college. When I was young, I was the youngest of four children, and my two older brothers were always into sports. My dad was a coach at the high school level, and so I, I just grew up around sports. I loved it from a young age, and in particular, I was very fond of watching baseball on television as a kid, and the Atlanta Braves were on TBS every game, every day, and so... I would, a lot of people watch the Cubs on WGN, but I fell in love watching the Atlanta Braves. And in 1991, when the Braves became good, my parents actually took us down to game uh, five in the 1991 World Series where the Braves beat the Twins 14 to five. And I always remember very vividly walking into Atlanta Fulton County Stadium that night. And I remember what it smelled like. I remember everything that happened. I vividly remember Mark Lemke 
hitting a bases loaded triple off the right center field wall and the, and the route was on and the place was electric and from that point on I was really hooked on sports and I realized as a, as a kid how much I enjoyed listening to the announcers and so I would set up shop in my family room and I would play with a little bat and ball and I would announce and I would play both teams and then when basketball season came I had a goal in my parents bedroom that I played on and I just found myself always announcing and so it was just something that I was always enamored with something I always wanted to try to do and after college I got that job in minor league baseball and just kept bouncing around and sticking with it now I'll keep doing it until somebody tells me to stop yeah what was your first uh, official play-by-play job was in college or was it the Orm Owls gig I mean the first professional one was that Oramel right. job. I left the day after college to go do that. Um, you know, I had a couple internships while I was in college, one with ESPN and one with the Texas Rangers. So those kind of got my feet wet in the business, so to speak. But the first official job was the minor league baseball gig. So with the Owls, I mean, I know minor league baseball, you're basically running everything. You're, you're doing media relations, play-by-play, sales, operations, all of that. How humbling of an experience was that for you, given it was your first professional uh, gig in the industry? How humbling was it for you? Uh, well, I mean, I loved it. I, I don't uh, – there was nothing about it that I thought was – I was too glamorous for it wasn't good right. enough. In fact, it was the opposite. I loved it. It was 76 games in 80 days, and I was 22, and a lot of the players were my age, so it was a lot of fun. I developed a lot of friendships out there, and just being able to call baseball every day, I didn't care about the long bus trips or the late nights and then going to the bar ballpark the next day at 11. I didn't care. I just wanted to call games. Uh, you know, it was certainly a little not the best financially. I was only making $500 a month right. and living living for $100 a month in the basement with four BYU students, <laughs> um, eating a lot of peanut butter and jelly in the clubhouse. But, but it was a fantastic experience, and I figured when I got through with that, if I still love broadcasting, that it was something I would want to continue to push on and pursue, and, and uh, I, I affirmed that that was the case. Yeah, and for you, I got to assume your big breakthrough moment, obviously, you get the gig with Madden, but at the same time, uh, uh, Fox Sports comes knocking on the door, BTN Network as well, because, I mean, what led to that kind of culminated stretch with all those opportunities? Because they basically all came in at the same time for you. Yeah, they did. It was kind of three things that happened at once. Again, I was at Georgia Tech. I, I was in my third year at Georgia Tech, and I really enjoyed it. I mean, it was ACC football and basketball, and I was embedded at the school, and that was a lot of fun, and getting to know the coaches and players there. <clears throat> and then I got the call from Fox, uh, excuse me, from EA Sports. That thing started to line up. And shortly after EA had asked me to do that, and it hadn't even been publicized, it was still private, but Fox through the Big Ten Network. Fox owns the Big Ten Network. Right. And so they asked if I would want to come try my hand at television. I had had a little TV experience, but not much. But, you know, that was uh, an opportunity I didn't think I could pass up. And, and at the same time, Westwood One Radio handles a lot of the national broadcasts for NFL and college football and the NCAA for basketball. They asked if I wanted to come over and start doing a full load of games for them. So I had this wow. unique marriage. Of, I left Georgia Tech and was able to announce at the same time that I was taking on this trio of new roles. Uh, and since since then, my 
roles that Fox have evolved. I've gone from less BTN to more Fox, and I don't do as much radio anymore. I do select NFL games for Westwood One and, and the NCAA tournament, but I more do um, more television in the last few years. And it's a great mix because I still get to do the radio. I love the radio. I love Westwood One, and I love the people that I work with at BTN and Fox. So I've, I've just been extremely lucky and fortunate and I realize that and that's something that I try not to take for granted I, I know that a lot of people don't get the opportunities that I've been blessed with and I'm extremely thankful for them I mean I mean that's got to be a huge moment for you I mean what, what's your uh, like specific goal like what's the uh, the uh, reach for the stars goal for you do you have one in mind or just trying to enjoy the current moment you know I've never really had uh, listed goals I operate under the cliche of if you do your best in this current moment, in that day, in that job, that the rest will take care of itself. And when I say the rest will take care of itself, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get to call the Super Bowl one day or the World Series. It's yeah. just that you'll be satisfied. I, I think what I've learned over the last however many years I've been out of school, 13, is that when you try to look too much into the future, and you focus on that is the apple in your eye ultimately that leads to what i have found disappointment and when you there's again there's nothing wrong with goals but when i think you make the top of the mountain your end all be all and if you don't get there you're a failure i think then maybe you're you're classifying success in the wrong way i think success is being satisfied in your job and doing the very best that you can and then let the chips fall where they may and putting more emphasis into your family life and if faith is important to you and to your faith and those things that matter a little bit more than what we do from nine to five. So right. um, I don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. Uh, if I get to call a Super Bowl someday, if I do I would I do I have aspirations to be like Nance and Buck and Michael? Sure, of course I do. You know that would be phenomenal, uh, and I'm going to continue to work towards that. But if I, at the end of the day, if I'm doing what I'm doing now, and five to ten years from now, and I've, I've given it my best shot, then I can look myself in the mirror and say that's okay. Right, and that was going to be the next thing I was going to ask you about, kind of trying to finding that balance in what you're doing professionally as well as just trying to be happy personally, because that's the overall goal for everybody. How? Uh, how quickly or slowly did you kind of come into the re realization of that? And, like, when was kind of, like, the tipping point where you were like, okay, I kind of have to focus more on, like, uh, the, uh, the, kind of like the personal reason of being happy? Yeah, I think it was more of a slow maturation outside of college. I mean, I always challenged myself to never look too hard at the next job, but I did find myself doing that to some degree in the first five years out of college of, okay, this is a good job, but what's next? What's next? And then I, I think at the time when I, when I got the play-by-play -play job at Butler, which was my alma mater, and I was starting to get towards my late 20s, I just put a little less emphasis on what's next and more focusing on the here and now. Um, so I don't know that there was a watershed moment, one that just sticks out, but I think it was just a, a gradual maturation of listening to others in the business and even outside of the business, just people in general and t learning what what makes people happy and those that are happy, why are they happy? And I guess what I found in my own personal little subjective poll is that people are typically more satisfied in their life when they aren't so hell-bent on 
professional objectives and goals making them uh, happy. Right. Uh, I, I think that, that if they put those at the top of the food chain and say, I have to get these things professionally, then, then usually they fall short of that happiness. And they're always craving more. They get to, the, oh, what's next? Uh, so I, I think it was just a gradual learning process for me. And, and the last thing I want to ask you before I let you go on that topic uh, for you, when was kind of like, again, like that tipping point of like, okay, like something really bad happened about the same time, you got to look at the bigger picture. Like, what do you think was like one of your biggest failures that stands out to you in your career from broadcasting? And like, what were you able to take away from it to say, okay, maybe this isn't all that like matters, you know? Yeah, I mean, just like everybody else, I, I've heard no. I've been I've been lucky to hear yes at times and get some great opportunities, but I've heard no. I've applied to things that haven't worked out. Um, and I think one example of a job that I didn't get that I was a little upset at at the time but that I learned a lot from was I was doing the play-by-play at the University of Evansville, and south carolina's men's basketball and baseball broadcast position opened i was 25 at the time and i thought it was a perfect next step for me i was doing baseball and basketball at evansville i thought it would be a a good launching pad and a perfect next step and i didn't get it and I, i thought i was going to get it and i didn't and i was upset but then a you know a short time later I got the, a job that I would have deemed much better at my alma mater going to broadcast for Butler. And, and the first year I was there, they go to the Final Four. Yeah. So um, I think through all of that, I learned the lesson of be patient. And if things don't work out, then that's okay. Now, if you apply for a job and you didn't put your heart into it and you didn't try your best and you didn't get it, well, then you can learn for a different reason. But I felt I did everything I could have for that position, and just subjectively they chose someone else, and that's okay. Um, so I think I learned a lot in that instance. Was that like uh, was was that one of like the tipping points for you in the sense of just like, okay, this isn't all end of the world? Like initially were you, like you just said, pretty bummed about it, but was there like any like silver lining in that right off the bat for you, or did it take some time? I wouldn't. I wasn't distraught because I yeah. really loved my job at the University of Evansville. I would say that was the first time that I experienced true professional disappointment. Of oh wait, I, I thought they were going to choose me. You know, it seemed like I was a good fit, um, but they didn't. And uh, I think that was just a, a lesson to say that's okay. It took me a, a little while to get over the sting of that. But then again, I, I refocused, and then an even better job came up, and that one did work out. Um, so I, I just I think there are a lot of lessons to be taken in the nose that we hear in life, no matter yeah. what our career path is. And uh, I think now when I hear no on something, I'm able to accept it a lot easier, maybe than I was back in my early to mid twenties. Right, and and just kind of to wrap things up here, going back uh, to work, like you said, back to the studio. <laughs> For Madden, is there anything like different in the different uh, games year by year that they uh, make you do? Like, are there any like new ideas that they suggest when it comes to just voiceovers in general? No, it's been pretty standard from year one. I think what's tough is that the pandemic this year has made it so we haven't been able to implement a ton of new ideas. Right. Uh, you know, when we started recording, Charles Davis and I, this was a new wave they were they were adding much more commentary to the game than had ever been added before so it's been a learning curve for everyone it was a great idea that ea had 
but to have that much audio on the game and so many sound bites, so many just uh, so much space on the disc, so to speak. I think there was a, there's a volume that they never had before, and so just categorizing all that, making sure it plays at the right times and sounds good, was a was a big enough chore for the first two years. Now we're at the point where we can start to layer in new things and new elements and new ideas. But then the pandemic hit. So right. hopefully for next year, if we can be back in the studio, we can start experimenting with some things and, and adding some new elements to it. Well, I wish you the best of luck with that. And Brandon, thanks so much for taking time out of your morning to uh, talk to me. And I hope you have a good rest of your day and a good rest of your year with everything going on, man. Thanks, Jack. Great to talk to you. Appreciate the time, man. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.